hello and welcome to another episode of Consumer, the European podcast of the Consumer Choice Center. As always, I'm your host, Bill Words, with Billy Joel's pressure fading out in the background, joined today by our favorite co-host. All, all the favorite co-hosts are joining. Um, no, this, uh, this time it's uh, Liz Hicks. Uh, Liz, how is it going? It's going great. I'm happy to be back here. Thanks for having me again. I'm excited to... Uh, talk to all of your uh, podcast followers here. It's the morning uh, for Liz when it's our afternoon. We had the clock change uh, for like a week. It's like five hours difference uh, between between the two of us as we are recording. This is the episode of November 10, 2022. Thank you uh, all uh, for listening. Of course, if you, you want to support this podcast, you can do so by going on consumerchoicecenter.org slash donate you can do that in fiat currency or in crypto if you uh, prefer that um or you write us a check i don't know um, do we take i guess we do take checks in case you uh, we'll, take, we'll a take, check. take a check yeah if you send one <laughs> we'll, we'll take it um and uh, so we have liz back on because we have great topics that we want to talk about this weekend we'll make it a big a bit of a secret we'll just roam through it uh, for the next uh, for the next half hour roughly and then uh, and then we'll see we'll see where we get with this so liz this is the first one we want to talk about i think everyone's talking about it at this point and that is Elon has bought Twitter at the uh, 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 the price that probably wouldn't be the same if he tried to buy it again today. $44 billion. Wow, that's a lot of money. And it's, it's quite quite something there. Um, would you be in the market to buy a social media company these days? Uh, well, you know, I don't have that amount of cash on hand to buy Twitter or a social media company. But, um, you know, I think it's an interesting prospect. And I think him coming in is creating a lot of new interesting dynamics for the platform and just for social media as well. So it's been quite fascinating, you know, getting all these updates as to what he's done so far. It sounds like he really became what he doesn't identify as CEO. He identifies as chief twit is my understanding is what he gave himself as the title <laughs> classic elon right but um it sounds like you know as soon as he became you know the head of twitter he just kind of kicked the door down and started making some pretty major changes which have rocked the boat so far it seems so lots of people lots of people have gotten uh, laid off uh, some of them with quite com- comfortable packages as a result of the shares that uh, that they owned as well so i guess good for them uh, regardless um, a lot of changes that uh, Elon wants to implement and making Twitter a free speech platform. Uh, and both sides of the aisle on, on this question have reacted, of course, in different ways. A lot of people celebrating it because they're allowed to say things that they otherwise wouldn't be allowed to say. Uh, but then, of course, the other side worried about uh, a spike in the use of uh, 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 profanity on the platform, uh, racist uh, uh, things that are being said on the platform, very ugly things that people think they can do uh, now again. Um, it's really hard to find sort of a, 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 a middle ground there because um, when you moderate a platform like this, it's really difficult. You know, when, when, we, when we talk about newspapers, um, sort of what a newspaper puts as an op-ed, or sort of the language a newspaper uses, you know, how, how, I mean, I don't know how, how, how many pages are on the New York Times. There's only so much there is to moderate. If you have a platform like Twitter where I don't know how many tweets go out in a second, I mean, there must be millions. It's really difficult to find sort of an algorithm to to sort of qualify what do we do with this, and I think and I think that's something that um, even though I think it's an exciting move that you know somebody else is in charge and wants to take the platform in a new direction, um, it's also I mean what is for sure is he's going to run into problems of his own um, um, with sort of the the moderation policies that he might want to implement. Yeah, it sounds like there is going to be you know kind of a rocky road with content moderation. Um, I saw. 
um, an article this morning saying that, you know, Elon has already frozen some of the Twitter's employees' access to the internal tools, internal tools needed for content moderation. Um, and that apparently is a big concern coming into midterm elections here um, for the U.S., just, you know, given how much misinformation can go out there. But I think what's important to remember is that Twitter is a private company. They're not entitled to, you know, provide a platform that allows all free speech. They are allowed to moderate how they want. But it sounds like Elon really wants to make it full free speech, even if that does, you know, have some less desirable speech on there. But I think that is the beauty of free speech is then we know, you know, who's having these kind of uh, hostile opinions, if you will. Um, but it is interesting because I remember back when Jack Dorsey was the CEO and um, after um, the big issue with Trump, Trump was kicked off Twitter. We saw a lot of, you know, conservatives on Twitter being upset about Trump being kicked off. Again, though, it's a private company, so they're allowed, they were allowed to do that. But then now, and the left was celebrating that, but now that Elon is the CEO, we're seeing a lot of the left depart from Twitter and leave Twitter. We've seen a handful of celebrities already leave, and we're seeing them being really frustrated with Elon being the CEO. But I think, again, what's important is we have to apply the same logic that was applied when Trump was kicked off. This is a private company, and they're allowed to act how they want to. And if you don't agree with that, we don't have to be a part of it. But I personally am really excited for Elon's changes. There is one in particular that I think me and other millennials might really enjoy. Apparently, he's going to be bringing back the looping videos that are formerly known as Vine. So we'll start seeing those again, hopefully. They're working on that. Apparently, Elon has brought in some of his um, employees from Tesla, who mo mostly do the like autopilot software, coming in to kind of revamp the software for Twitter. So I'm really excited to see what changes come about from that. Uh, in, indeed, that's going that's going to be quite interesting. I mean, I'm I'm a I've been I've been critical of, of Elon Musk for sort of you know the, the on, on the Tesla side, sort of the the government subsidies that the company has benefited from. So the company is it is successful to what extent it would be equally successful on the free market is hard to say because um, it, electric cars don't just benefit from tax credits. They also benefit from specific direct subsidies, which is why Elon has been able to ramp up the capital to be able to do something like this. So, I mean, there is definitely also wealth. The welfare state is involved in this sort of the transfer payments are involved with him being able to do that. Um, so in a sense, the, the people who've been arguing for subsidizing uh, a less uh, 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 CO2 emitting cars, even though we can put them a question as well uh, at one point, um, are the ones essentially responsible for uh, him being able to purchase Twitter in the first place, which is an interesting ir irony uh, involved there. And the other thing that you mentioned, the... Uh, the, the parts about sort of like how the pendulum swings on the political uh, grid. I remember uh, when the Arab Spring started, Facebook was the epitome of democracy. That was like Facebook managed to give the people the tools to rebel against their own government. It's such a great innovation. Facebook was really at its height of its popularity uh, at, at that stage. You know, we're talking 12, 2012, 2013. Um, then it went down quite a bit because essentially uh, the, the premise is that, well, now all those tools that had been used initially by Obama during his campaign successfully were then used by the wrong people. So the wrong people got into power, you know, and then Brexit was voted and Donald Trump uh, used the same tools, uh, Cambridge Analytica, all these stories. For a brief moment, Facebook was instrumental in overturning the laws, uh, the ban on abortion in, in Ireland. So then Facebook was briefly very good again. Um, and now it's very bad again. So, I mean, these platforms um, have to be, I mean, you have to see them that the, 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 people use this as vehicles to communicate. And, you know, there are things we don't like on that platform. I mean, if I, 
I mean, things, um, you know, this happens also with my girlfriend sometimes. I'm like, babe, I can't talk to you right now. Somebody's wrong on the internet. Like, there are things that outrage me as well. I, I am that person. Um, but, um, you know, you just sort of have to see this in perspective. It used to be that you would go to the bar and you would have somebody talking shit and just, you know, being wrong about things. And, and now you just have like a, a larger space to do that. Uh, but, you know, that doesn't mean everybody will gain the traction to take over the government necessarily. Um, it, it it just, you know, there's, there's sort of a spontaneous order involved. And I think Facebook has sort of found out when when you try and steer the content in too much of a direction, what you end up with is like just cat videos and, and, and pictures that nobody... I mean, that's I, I, to me, that's why Facebook is just not interesting to me anymore because the content has just been whatever. And so it's really hard to find a direction to to steer or not to steer a social media platform. Totally, yeah. And I think with Facebook too, I mean, with the more content moderation we see happening and, you know, perhaps one sort of political ideology, the other side is, you know, has its own backlash where they're regrouping and they're frustrated by this. So, you know, in a weird way by you know, content monitoring in a certain way, it, it kind of fuels, you know, the other side and, and unites them in a way. So it's, it's, it is interesting to see how social media has played out, especially when it comes to politics and, and polarization, of course. It's been a huge tool for that in the last, you know, five, six years, if not longer. Um, so it is interesting to see how, how it's all going and, and what will come for the future of social media in general. Yeah, I mean, my, my theory in polarization is it has very little to do with the way we talk. It has very little to do with the way we communicate with social media platforms. I actually don't, I don't blame the whatever 180 characters or whatever it is on Twitter for polarization. I think the reason for polarization is because the government has considerably more means than ever before. And the stakes are very high. If you have the president, you get to decide not just on politics, you get to do a lot on culture too. What the president says goes, sort of what is acceptable to say, all these things. That didn't used to be the same uh, in the past. It used like, The government was considerably more limited. I think now, with the government having so much power to steer the direction of our lives, that's why people are very polarized, because winning means winning quite a, qu quite a lot of power. And I think that's why people are polarized, is because the government does so much. I would agree with that. I think in the U.S. in particular, since 9-11, we've seen a lot of the polarization happening. I think what you just said really speaks to that because, you know, we saw a lot of new laws coming into place after 9-11 to enhance security and, and you know, national security and things like that. A lot of these I don't disagree or I disagree with. So, But um, but it is interesting because, yeah, now the presidency holds so much power, at least in the U.S. and, and you know, elsewhere, too, around the world. Um, but it's, it is interesting because... Yeah, it's it's just creating a lot of a lot of polarization, in my opinion, where you know people aren't able to have conversations anymore about their political beliefs, and I think that's why we're seeing such you know it brings back to Twitter and Elon. I think that's why we see such backlash over things like this. I mean, now that I mean, obviously Jack Dorsey was on the left side of the political spectrum. Elon's more arguably on the right side. I would say he's probably more in the middle, but you know, right of center if we're you know playing this line, but. And it's interesting because, you know, we're just seeing people get so frustrated with that. Um, and I think, again, it's just because, you know, as with the presidency holding a lot of power, these social media companies hold a lot of power as well with, you know, where trends are going or how culture is, is developed. Um, and so I think it is interesting to see how that will play out as well. Absolutely. So the, the bird is free now, according to Elon, and we'll see what the, where, the, where the bird will fly. I don't know if that analogy made any sense. But uh, anyway, let's go to the next topic. 
Uh, Liz, have you glued yourself to a piece of art lately? Oh, you know what? I haven't because I respect private property. But, um, you know, it seems like this is a big thing going on in Europe, Bill. So what is going on with these Europeans gluing themselves to things and dumping tomato soup on stuff and spray painting <laughs> yeah, buildings? Oh, man, it's the Wild West out there, apparently. What's going on? Exactly. There were recently also some uh, some, some people in The Hague in, in the museum that uh, glued themselves to one of the famous paintings. I mean, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not enough of an art I believe it was the girl with the pearl the earring. There we go. Thank you for helping me out there, Liz. Uh, <laughs> um, and, uh, well, their claim has been, uh, to a large extent, is that these works of art are protected by glass which is correct uh and therefore there's no destruction of that because uh, i you know i would assume they would probably deal with quite a bill if they would have to pay for these paintings um so their, their case here is that we should just stop oil that is the that is the argument here it's the the three letters solution to a very complicated the, the three word solution to a very complicated problem just stop oil while dyeing their hair um, and uh, and they're trying to attract more attention to this conversation. Recently, there was also an activist on a Dutch TV show who glued himself to uh, to the to the interview table during the live show. Um, they did find out that he was not actually using uh, regular glue because when they transported the table off, he did fall off very quickly. So he was using fake glue. Um, but what is interesting, though, is like the, the to get your. I mean, if you use genuine uh, super glue, instant super glue, um, then you need a special chemical to get people off. I mean, if you just try to rip it off, you'll 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 injure yourself considerably there. Um, I, I I think it really doesn't help their cause. Um, well, one because they're not leading by example, but also because they are just you know quite um, you know outraging people. I, I don't think I don't think this is really productive for their aims. Um, but yeah, how do you deal with this? You know, I, I guess if you do this in Japan or Korea, you would probably end up in jail and they would treat this quite severely. Um, what do you think should be sort of the repercussions for people who, who do this? Yeah, you know, I it's frustrating to see this because it's just like performative activism that's not doing anything. Um, and ironically, too, I mean, most glue products are petroleum based. So just stop oil by gluing yourself with an oil based product like where is the thought in this it just seems very lazy in my opinion but it is also interesting because you know just stop oil is like the repercussions of that are major and i can appreciate from their perspective you know they obviously care about the environment and the climate and you know the earth and they want to make sure that you know the earth is around for a long time and and that we're not destroying it i can appreciate that however i think you know, it's quite a privilege to say that when, you know, energy is what we rely on to live. We're going into the winter, right? And this was a big topic throughout this whole year about energy in, in Europe in particular and what the what the winter was going to look like. Um, and so to say, just stop oil. Okay, did you want to freeze in the winter? Did you like not want to be able to produce food and, and be able to get to and from work and, and have internet and have all these luxuries that literally got them to be able to go to the Hague, to go to these places, to glue themselves to these things. So I just find it really ironic that they're trying to, you know, just stop oil, but yet oil is what is making them able to do a lot of the things they're able to do. So I think, you know, what needs to be done is we need to be better at talking about the, you know, how green we're becoming with producing oil and the different, you know, ways we can do that more cleanly. And I think to a lot of these developed countries, Canada is particularly good at, um, at refining oil and, um, and getting oil out of the ground, and they do it, I think, the most cleanly in the world. The U.S., I think, is a close second. Um, 
but I think, you know, if we continue to refine these practices and make them greener and less, I, I don't know if they are, you know, that more, that environmentally damaging, but we can continue to, through the market, to improve these processes and, and be able to have the luxuries that we have and also make sure that, you know, the earth will be healthy for a long time. If their if their if their ideology if their ideological stream was not also the one that heavily tried to avoid the construction of any nuclear power plants in the past, I would at least understand where they were coming from because they would have argued for the solution for a long time and then nobody listened to them and now they would be like, well, we should have just stopped oil. But they weren't, you know, they, they, they were protesting essentially any intrusion. That's why they're essentially anti-impact. They don't, they're not pro, they're not pro-humanity. They want, you know, people not to travel anywhere, people not to uh, burn any fossil fuels. But in order to produce, I mean, nothing should be done. We should essentially leave it as is, a sort of a status quo kind of uh, 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 approach to the environment. Also, um, they're also against fracking, um, which emits considerably less CO2 emissions. Um, the UK, uh, with new Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, we'll see how long he's going to stay in office, but uh, he reversed the decision by Liz Trust to uh, to allow licenses for fracking in the UK. Uh, fracking in, in the US, I think, you correct me if I'm wrong, I think that was particularly under the Obama administration that, that really got jump-started. And that has provided a lot of cheaper energy and more environmentally friendly energy to the U.S. Yes, definitely. So fracking, I mean, it has led to a revolution in shale gas production in the U.S. here. And for us, I mean, shale gas has promised better economic opportunities, cheaper energy bills, and it is, it's a great alternative to coal. Um, but I think, too, we've seen a lot of issues with it as well. We've seen a lot of pushback from, you know, environmental groups. Um, but interestingly, I think, through fracking, you know, with property rights and markets, we will be able to innovate on fracking um, and be able to, you know, make it, I think, a better option for us as well. Um, so I, I think it's a great option for us, but it's just been so controversial for the last few years. So it's it definitely is going to be a battle. Yeah, it didn't help that in, in the initial shale gas industry, there were some mistakes being made and individuals, uh, was a faucet lit on fire or something like that? And I think those videos have sort of been going around for a while, even though that's quite a rare occasion and I wouldn't want to have my sink on fire, um, uh, arguably. And I think that it's reasonable for people not to, to expect that the, the sink does not light on fire. Uh, but again, it's, it's fairly rare. And I think we've come a long way with that technology. I mean, essentially, if the US... Uh, uh, if the U.S. you know uh, sends people experts who already have experience in that to Europe because we do have the ability to use fracking as well, even in my tiny country Luxembourg, uh, that is an availability. Um, but unfortunately, uh, again, again, a lot of pushback even in Germany, um, where you know there's remaining nuclear power plants that could be restarted. Again, there the government doesn't really know what to do. The environmentalists are also in government. So we seem to keep dealing with this problem, even though we do have a good reason to do this outside of the environmental question even. I mean, we have a geopolitical reason right now to try and find alternatives in our own uh, uh, countries uh, in order to not uh, uh, fund the Russian war machine by buying uh, more gas from them. And on top of that, I think what is the really interesting thing is sort of the break between the environmentalist left and the trade unionist left. Because the, the trade unionist left used to care, or I, th I guess still cares about people on low incomes and how they're going to get it 
get through the winter and how much they have to pay for their utilities. And the environmentalist left is sort of the sort of the upper class, live in cities, can afford an electric car. So like, well, why don't you just do this? You know, I went to a fancy university and I learned all these things. So now I should, you know, I now I know better than everyone. And so I think that that's a real break between those two kind of groups, um, which which is very fascinating. We've had we've seen a lot of that in Europe. I'm not sure how replicable that is in, in the US, but but I, I think within their movement, they really have that that rift. Yes, I it definitely is here in the US as well. Um, you know, we call them, you know, the liberal elite, if you will. But, you know, these folks who have the the privilege of being able to buy Teslas or buy electric vehicles or, you know, install their own charging stations in their homes or, you know, live this more eco-friendly lifestyle that comes at a pretty significant price for most people, I mean, especially in this economy. And so then when you look at, you know, the folks who are, you know, don't have the means to do that, I mean, they still care about the environment, but, you know, they can't do the same kind of um, actions as some of these other folks. So I think that's why things like fracking and, and you know, continuing to improve on these practices is so important. If we just ban these things outright before we're able to innovate and improve on them, we're really missing out on a lot of these opportunities. And speaking to your point earlier, I totally agree. I mean, there have been some mishaps when it comes to fracking in the U.S. And, you know, this has affected, you know, tons of residents um, throughout certain areas where fracking was pretty prevalent. But again, I think learning from those mistakes, they're able to improve, refine, and enhance what they're able to do more effectively, more cleanly, and be able to provide for more people. So at the end of the day, I think we need to really you know, embrace these technologies and and understand that they're not perfect yet. And it's going to take more innovation and more creative destruction to get them even better. But at this point, they are great options for us in order to continue to keep the lights on and, and keep everything moving. Mm-hmm. And, and the expectation of perfection, I think, is also is, is a big ask. I mean, you can you can you can replicate that on sort of any level of energy production. I mean, you, if if it's like biomass plants that light that 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 catch fire, if it's a, if it's a windmill that falls over uh, and affects uh, people that way, you can you can also run the numbers. I mean, I, I know that you know Newt Gingrich used to be the guy who would talk about all the birds being killed by windmills. Not that he cares particularly about the birds, but I mean, he would use it as a convenient excuse. So all sides of the arts of do this where they 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 nitpick and i mean ultimately what we want to get away from is sort of the most egregious types of uh, of polluting energy and in coal is a good example of that not just very polluting but also very dangerous for the people who work in it um so so there's really no that there's a good point to work together on these things and sort of be charitable and sort of the the approach we take uh, and not just um and not not just retreat to our sort of ideological um, um, uh, camps. I mean, there's 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 good reason to to move forward together on these things. But uh, uh, let's let's talk about one more issue um, that uh, that consumers um, in but the difference between Europe and and the US to me is is quite significant uh, on this one, and that is legal fees. Uh, trying to take uh, someone to court, trying to go to court to get your rights. Um, that 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 can be quite costly, and um, and I wanted to chat a bit to you about sort of your experiences, personal experiences, um, because what I what I've seen uh, is that in in Europe, in many countries, it's quite expensive to to get a lawyer. Uh, the the where I'm from, Luxembourg, uh, sort of the average would be between three hundred fifty to four hundred euros just to get a letter written by a lawyer. That's about the same amount in U.S. dollars for those American listeners, at least currently. Um, so, so that is quite pricey, and that creates a system by which you know, if you're a freelancer and you have an unpaid invoice by someone, 
you have to sort of calculate but at which height of an invoice it even makes sense for you to go to court unless you know somebody who might do it pro bono for you and that's not really available to many people um what is also interesting is that many european countries ban success rate arrangements so this is sort of the um, the idea that uh, your lawyer does not charge you uh, but he or she gets 10 20 30 percent of whatever damages end up being paid that's illegal in many european countries um, and i don't quite understand what the reason for that is i know i, I once spoke from somebody to somebody at the luxembourgish bar and i asked why is this not allowed and their reasoning was quite interesting and you'll love this liz they said oh that's a sort of an american approach to the legal system that's a very commercialized approach um so so what are sort of your experiences because i mean you, you you've you've told me also before we've started recording that the us is a quite highly litigious uh country and what does that look like in practice? Like, how do you, because I've seen these ads in the US, like hire a lawyer for like these kind of damages. So it, it's quite mediatized to get a lawyer and people seem to do it a lot. But what are the costs involved? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the US is, I mean, I might be biased here, but I think the US is arguably one of the most litigious countries. Um, it, it, people are suing each other all the time. There's Our justice system is just, you know, backfiled with tons of cases that they need to go through still. Um, but lawyers aren't expensive here. And there is definitely, they've, you know, we have billboard lawyers where they're advertised on billboards. We have tons of commercials about lawyers. Lawyers will, you know, send direct mail pamphlets to your house. Like, you know, we're, there's a lot of advertising of lawyers and there's tons of lawyers in the U.S., but they are pretty expensive. The typical hourly rate for a lawyer on average across all states is around, you know, $270. But that really can vary. I mean, you know, if you're getting a higher higher class lawyer who maybe has more experience and, you know, a higher success rate, that could be, you know, upwards of a couple thousand dollars an hour. If you get somebody who's, you know, fresh out of law school, it's going to be cheaper than the 270 per hour. So it really ranges on, you know, what you can afford or what you need or what you want for your, your legal defense, if you will. Um, one of the things that um, it's true for the U.S. as we do have the Sixth Amendment of the Constitution, which does guarantee the rights um, to criminal defendants to have a right to a lawyer without them needing to pay for it. So if you can't afford a lawyer, one will be provided to them um, for their criminal case. I don't believe this applies civilly. However, there are quite a bit of groups in the U.S., like nonprofits and, and philanthropic entities that do help supplement these costs for folks who, who need lawyers in civil cases but can't quite afford them. We see this a lot with like immigration and, and things like this. Um, so it is really interesting, but there is just a lot of of, of uh, lawsuits here in the U.S. There's no shortage of that. And it almost is like a... We always joke that, you know, there's some people who you can tell they have a family lawyer and you just you don't you don't mess with them because, you know, they're going to come after you legally. <laughs> and so it just it kind of keeps everyone ch in, in check a little bit. But at the same time, it's such an expensive process. Like you were saying, if you have like um like a, like you're saying, like an invoice that, you know, maybe your whoever you contracted with didn't pay you, but you, you know, you should be getting paid to take that to court to battle that and potentially win it's going to cost arguably more than what the invoice is worth depending on how much the invoice is but any legal case at least in the u.s you're definitely looking at thousands of dollars i mean i would say a minimum of like ten thousand dollars at least that you're going to be putting in to overcome some of this but they also can go on forever and you can appeal and redo it and do that and so it just these these costs can add up and then talking to your point about i think what was it the success rate um yeah 
Yeah, that that's something that is very American. And we see this a lot with um, lawyers who deal with um, like uh, situations with a lot of victims. Um, you know, like if there's like a plane crash, for example, um, we'll see a lot of uh, law firms do this kind of success rate thing where they'll say, you know, you don't have to pay us. But if we win and we get you this money, then we will take a certain percentage of that. And there are a handful of pretty major law firms in the U.S. who have done really well on this and have actually come into uh, into some controversy recent, recently because of it, because these percentages can actually equate to tons of money. And so, for example, I believe it was like the Lion Air um plane crash that happened a while ago that was litigated system yeah yes that was litigated through the u.s the there was a law from the u.s based in california that represented the the victims the family the victims of the family yeah and so um but they took i can't remember what percentage they took but it ended up being like just millions and millions of dollars and they you know, not as much ends up going back to those victims either, because then if they win, they take a percentage, but they also, that percentage encompasses what their fees would be anyways, plus a little extra typically. So it is interesting. It does work for some cases, in my opinion, but for others, it can maybe not work as well. I think it just depends on the percentage and you have to be mindful of, of what you would pay out. But but yeah, it is an interesting think- system. And I think what creates creates the system as well is that in in, in the U.S. the courts uh, seem to also provide damage payments that are in quite astronomical heights that we don't quite uh, get. I mean, I've seen this case recently. It's a very egregious uh, murder case where uh, the guy gets uh, twenty five years in, in prison and he has uh, and he has to pay a fine of a thousand euros. Um, none of which, by the way, goes in damages to to the family in any way whatsoever. This is essentially just paid in the, in the, in the criminal procedure to the government, uh, which which is very strange. Um, and, and 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 companies also deal with you know the EU has started this sort of trying to get social media companies, especially American companies, uh, give them high fines for uh, uh, privacy infringements. But it's it's a new phenomenon in Europe that companies really pay very large amounts in damages, um, essentially with the very famous case of the woman who burned herself on the McDonald's coffee, I think it was McDonald's coffee, uh, that wouldn't really happen in Europe. The, in, in, in Europe, the, 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 the court would sort of assess what her medical bills were and, uh, and maybe maybe some of that. Uh, I mean, I don't think the case would have gone out, would have gone the same way in Europe. It was like, well, if you get a coffee, it's, it's your responsibility if you spill it on yourself. Uh, but if they had decided in, 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 in the woman's favor, they would have just paid sort of the, the realistic damages. Because I think the court system in the U.S. tries to sort of make a point towards other companies to become more careful. There's sort of a there's almost a, a regulatory aspect to teaching companies a lesson, and I think that creates a situation where law firms have an incentive to try and get you know sort of these success rates because then they can skim off as much as possible of these millions of of dollars because there's no real limit to how much you can ask, and there's hard it's hard to understand where the courts is are going to go in sort of the, the, the payouts that they that they prescribe. I think the Alex Jones case has been also a similar one where um, it almost seems that the court, uh, I, I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I think he's entertaining, but I don't think he uh, he's valuable to the, to the, to the, to civil conversation. But I, it, to me, it appears almost that, you know, so the, the, the court is trying Here's to. what I found. 
no, there was Siri trying to talk to me. Um, but uh, we're sort of the, <laughs> I guess they're listening to us. Um, uh, but uh, we're almost it seems like the court is trying to bankrupt the company to try and make a point about sort of the the the, the, the continuation of their work. Um, and, and I think that's a big difference between our two systems is that the court really focuses only on the individual situation where in the US, the courts try to sort of extrapolate from the individual uh, litigation and go into and go into something more uh, political almost. Yeah, I mean, one thing that you said is like, you know, in Europe, when, you know, you have these sorts of cases, they would just pay, you know, what the what the actual damages were, like what the hospital bills were or whatever. But in the US, we have this thing called emotional damages, which is this kind of all encompassing, super subjective thing where you mean, yes, like people arguably if you were wronged and, you know, let's say like the McDonald's coffee thing, I think it's a little controversial. I mean, you should know coffee is hot, but that's fine. Um, But, you know, for her, let's just say, you know, that was fair. Um, You know, I think interestingly, yeah, her hospital bills should have been paid. And, you know, if she had to miss work, maybe that should have been compensated as well. But then I think where the huge sum comes in is the emotional distress that the situation caused her. And then that's where we see these huge lump sums come into play. And then also, too, because I think litigation can be so expensive, we do see a lot of these companies, you know, just often go towards mediation immediately um, and try to settle out of court, which will save them a lot of money in the long term and also can save them the damages of any sort of PR backlash from these cases. And so um, we also see this a lot in the medical field with malpractice cases where, you know, if there is something wrong, oftentimes they'll just settle outside of court um, just to make it easier and to just kind of get dismissed and move on. Um, and that seems to be um, a pretty common thing. But interestingly, you know, when Americans sue, they're looking for money. They're looking for compensation for something typically, unless it's criminal. But even criminally, I mean, you can still get some things, but but especially civilly, I mean, it's almost always they're you know trying to get compensation and oftentimes more compensation than, in my opinion, what they're owed for however they've been wronged because they're just pushing in, they're looping in this emotional damages, which is, and to me, just super subjective and can be an astronomical amount. And and what what is an interesting distinction as well in our system is that on the criminal level, so for instance, in in, in an example uh, that you punch me in the face and then I go to the police station and I report you, um, there is, I mean, there could be a scenario in which both of us would be able to settle, but the government still takes the case uh, to court anyway, because there, you know, there was a disorderly conduct on my behalf, and and that will not be dropped. That does that is not possible for the for for as soon as you sort of instigate that procedure, the government is not able to even stop it. The prosecutor will still continue to prosecute me based on the violence that I committed. And as far as I understand, you can settle these type of cases because there's these celebrity cases with these sexual harassment cases that sort of go away when they settle. Uh, in Europe, that wouldn't be possible because the prosecutor, the government would still. Uh, look into it regardless and uh, where it sometimes happens that you know these things do take a lot of time and it clogs up the courts also quite a bit so I guess we clog up the court by the government sort of having these rules um, while in the US it clogs up the court because well people sue each other quite a bit Um, I I guess it's better than fighting uh, uh, it out I guess I guess I guess uh, sort of having having a duel is 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 not is not uh, is not the right way to go so might as well have it in court for a long time but um, Liz, uh, this is about as much time as uh, we have today. 
thank you so much for coming on and discussing Elon, the glue people, and uh, and and going through sort of our legal systems there. It's great to talk to you. Uh, it's great to sort of have that connection and make sort of comparisons because even though uh, it's a globalized world, there are still quite a few differences between our two continents. So it's it's always great to chat to you. Yes, it was a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, and hopefully I'll be back again soon. Absolutely, we'll have you back. Thank you so much for listening to the Consumer Podcast, and uh, yeah, I'll see you Thursday. You have-